Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. The consequences for human life become magnified. The secret of life itself. The DNA molecule. A genetic discovery that could give man the ability to create life to specifications. With it comes the power to change evolution itself. Never have we had such opportunity. Such awesome responsibility. The DNA molecule might very well turn out to be the most important discovery in the whole history of medical science. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Milestone in podcasting, the 100th episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now your special guest host, Chris Barbie. Hello, and welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology, the focus on biotechnology, and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Chris Barbie, a PhD student with Kevin Folta in my fourth year. With me today is Kevin Folta. Yay, it's me. <laughs> I'm on this side of the microphone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, today, uh, we're going to talk about Kevin Folta, his uh, lab activities, and just kind of make a special for the 100th episode. Yeah, 100th episode. Yeah, big deal. That is a big deal. How long has this been? A year or more? Well, I started in June of 20. 20- 
15, right. right after I was uh, on the Joe Rogan podcast. And Joe said, you got to start a podcast. And I said, well, I already have one, kind of. That's right. <laughs> but that was the one where I was I didn't want to do a podcast as me because I have overdue reviews, overdue grant reports, overdue everything. But that's because I bite off more than I could chew. And so, yeah. I did, you know, I, I didn't want to do that. I remember that. You didn't. You were kind of like uh, uh, hesitant with that idea. Yeah, I did. And that was, that was like the world's first introduction to Vern Blasick being you, that I was, think. That was... That was Vern Blazak's first appearance. <laughs> uh, it was it was um, uh, it was weird because I just didn't want to ha- be Kevin Fulta doing a podcast because there was uh, I it, you know no I, I have no hobbies I have no life if I have a podcast that's big deal you know but a lot of people look at it as a distraction from the things I should be doing. Yet a hundred episodes later, I think it's one of the coolest things I I do and probably the thing that. Uh, makes the biggest difference. Yeah, definitely. And for the podcast that I've been on, it hasn't really taken a lot of time to do it. Like for this one, we just kind of were meeting in your office today. Yeah, so well, I mean, oh, yeah. you mean in our, <laughs> our high-tech studio. Yeah, excuse me, our high-tech studio. Uh, bite your tongue. <laughs> we don't want people to think this is a Mickey Mouse operation. Uh, can I ask you a question before we get started? Oh, sure. Uh, has it come up yet on the Talking Biotech podcast that you were once a professional birthday party clown? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. <laughs> but um, I, I do have a uh, an extensive background in those kinds of uh, uh, Harlequin arts. Um, no, I used to work at um, the Ground Round restaurant chain, and I was 16 years old. And when you're 16, you can work at um, McDonald's or Burger King and get paid $3.35 an hour. Or you can work at the Ground Round restaurant as the clown <laughs> and make like 15 an hour. And so my deal was if I'm going to invest the time, I'm going to do this big. And so, yeah, I used to work on uh, Saturdays and Sundays doing the kids' parties. <laughs> and then that blossomed in because then parents would tell you. They would be like, hey, you know, this is pretty cool. Do you do uh, other stuff? You know, like, right. And next thing I knew, I was going to parties. I'd quote them, you know, 100 bucks for a couple hours a show. And... Uh, I was supposed to stay for like 45 minutes or an hour, but I'd stick around for four hours and I'd do stuff, you know, just keep the kids entertained and the parents would go drink wine and then they were happy to, the word got around pretty quick (laughs) that there's this guy who shows up and like takes care of everything and you just have to throw him a hundred bucks. Yeah. I think those are like a lot of translatable skills and being a department chair there. Absolutely. Yeah. It was like hurting cats and, and only hurting kids, which is kind of what, you know, I mean, working as a department chair, it's always putting out fires and taking care of everything. Everybody's problems. So, good deal. <laughs> yeah. So, how long have you been department chair now? Three years? It'll, no, years? it's been five. Five. So, I'm starting my sixth year on December 1st. Crazy. Yeah. So, it's uh, it's been, but that's been a great experience because I never realized that I had a managerial skill set. And, uh, and so, having those opportunity to really work with getting problems out of the way of faculty who are working across really diverse disciplines here in this department... It's been a lot of fun and a lot of satisfaction. It's uh, not what I would prefer to do, but I kind of have a knack for it. And I guess it's kind of a, you know, people who enjoy doing it, you know, it is pretty rare. Right. I think it lets you see the big picture, too. You know, you're always traveling around the state, visiting labs, seeing what everyone's up to, the latest and greatest, kind of have your finger on the pulse of the local agricultural scene in Florida. It seems like a pretty good fit for you. 
and that's probably why you've lasted so long, right? Yeah, well, and also <laughs> the ability to connect with the, the industries and yeah. connect with the growers and connect with the uh, people who are who are growing the citrus trees going through the crisis and helping add your two cents to what the next phase of blueberry production will look like. Those are really exciting things to do and have that kind of guidance. But the most important part is probably the development of junior faculty and people who are starting out really at a place like this looking down a relatively short tenure and promotion um, maze and uh, being able to give those give that guidance and really help those people structure their careers on a real hot start and that's been a big focus about what I do and and probably one of the more fulfilling benefits of that the more fulfilling edges of that right so that's one of your three jobs as I see it you've got the department chair thing going we talked a little bit about your SciComm efforts. We should touch more on that later. But the third one is your active research lab. Yeah. Which I'm obviously a part of. Yeah, you have been a part of. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's really what I was hoping episode 100 would be because lots of people have asked, you know, why don't you talk about your research? That's yeah, something. perfect. And so, I don't know, what do you want to talk about? Well, let's talk about me. That's my favorite thing, right? <laughs> and start with my research. Okay, cool. So, you know, why don't you, you know, we could, you could talk about your research. Wait, wait before we do, so we are ostensibly a strawberry molecular research laboratory. Was that what we were, what you were hired as? No, that's really funny. Um, back when I was hired, University of Florida was given a position by the legislature based upon the projections of a really cool guy named Chip Hinton. And Chip Hinton is a, at the time, he was the director of the Florida Strawberry Growers. And Chip was a football player. He was a linebacker for the Gators back in the 60s or 70s. Big, giant guy. Nicest guy you ever met. And Chip went to the legislature on behalf of the Florida Strawberry Industry, which was growing up very quickly at the time, back in the 90s. And he said, and this is late 90s, we need to have a genomics program here for strawberry. And this is when genomics was just getting out of a rabbitopsis. I mean, we had microarrays, and we had very, very fledgling genomics capacity and no sequenced genomes. But still, this guy had the vision to say, we want strawberry to have a genomics program. So they put up ads for strawberry genomicist, and nobody came a-knocking. Because <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> it didn't <laughs> exist, especially in the 90s. I mean, and um, and so we were you were... There was nobody coming through. People were applying and people were interviewing. And they went through two rounds of interviews and didn't find anybody who, you know, was their strawberry Johnny Bravo, you know. It didn't, just wasn't clicking. And so the third round, they advertised for genomics person, gene expression or whatever. And I saw the ad and I figured, University of Florida, hell, I'll never get that job. There's no way. And I threw my application in and... Um, and uh, and got the interview. And, All right, I'll go interview, but I'm not going to get hired there. And I kind of showed up down here already defeated and didn't show up saying, and I knew the other candidates who were interviewing who on paper were just like off the charts way better than me. Oh, you knew them. So you, did yeah. you sabotage them? No. <laughs> I, um, no, actually, it was exactly the opposite. We, we, we I actually was promoting them and st- talking about how good their stuff was. And um, <laughs> and how I liked everything they did, and I and I came down here and just had a good time, 
and I met all the faculty. And you know the culture here is, is pretty cool. Yeah. And so the first night I went out to dinner with Kurt Hannon, Rebecca Darnell, and Karen Koch, and we just had a great Oh, that's a good time. Yeah, we had a good time. We had a we had a wonderful dinner and then everything I did for the next couple days was not me under the microscope of an interview. I came here as a scientist with a cool story to tell and just let it fly. And, you know, chances are these people who are here in an excellent place like University of Florida, Hort Science Department, I would see these folks again in grant panels and conferences and everything else. So my goal was to come down and just share the cool work that I do. And uh, it was all in light. It was all in, under, in very early microarray work where we were really beta testing the first affymetrics arrays for plants. And um, uh, that was kind of the formula. It wasn't about having the thickest CV. It was about being the guy who was maybe had some interesting science who was a fun guy down the hall and somebody who wouldn't mind working in this environment. And so it, for me, it was that was kind of the funny way to get the job. Yeah, right. There you go. It's the uh, it's the, the clown uh, the clown skills that it was put to work for you. Yeah, and the balloon animal thing really went off great during yeah. the seminar. They, it's <laughs> important to like who you work with, isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but but so how does strawberry get folded into this? So that was the funny part was that I had no idea about strawberries. The department chair at the time, Dan Cantliff, took me aside out. You know, we we're walking around on the tour, and he says, "Oh, by the way." Uh, you know, we know you're an Arabidopsis scientist. You don't know anything about agriculture. You're, you know, kind of a dim bulb for all that stuff. Um, but we're going to let you know. <laughs> um, there's an opportunity here to really work on strawberries. And I said, strawberries? Well, what is this? A strawberry? That'd be okay. And he didn't really talk much about it. And actually at the dinner the night before, Karen said, oh, we got to tell you, um, tomorrow you're going to meet with some deans. And if they ask you about your strawberry work, just say it's going really great. But let me tell you about a Arabidopsis right now, much more exciting. And I thought, that's kind of weird. And then the next day, all the deans are asking, tell me about your work in strawberries. And I said, oh, well, I'd love to, but let me tell you about a Arabidopsis. Good advice, Karen. <laughs> so, yeah. So, the, so it was it was this weird situation where they were looking for someone to work in strawberries, but you know, it wasn't me. Right. Tree here today. Well, that's what was so funny. The first <laughs> faculty meeting, not everybody was really happy about the fact that they hired an Arabidopsis molecular biologist to um, work on strawberries, you know, which really should have been much more of a commodity-centric, um, production-oriented maybe, maybe breeding background. First faculty meeting, uh, our chair said, you know, there's Fulta over there. He's our new strawberry guy. And everybody laughed. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I've never even seen a strawberry tree. <laughs> that, brought, oh, you, that was actually a line. That, you that was actually a line in the meeting. It brought down the house. Winning and, them over. Yeah. From that point on, clown skills, man. Yeah. I, can, I absolutely can see it. <laughs> but but it seems to make sense to me that you would want somebody with strong molecular skills in support of a breeding effort. And obviously, UF has had a breeding program for decades and decades. Yes. I think that they made a sensible choice. Actually, it worked out fine because I think what they were looking for was somebody who was a Swiss Army knife. Yeah, you want somebody who's not afraid to take on something that that requires a diverse skill set, or someone who could even invent the skills to solve the problem, which is what we ended up doing with making transformation tools and applying all kinds of interesting um, edges to what was a discipline that didn't exist. 
And with the first grant from the strawberry growers, which was $1,800, was my first grant. Good money, wow. And, um, yep, the shill for big strawberry. <laughs> yeah, you can barely buy Eppendorf tubes with that money. <laughs> well, we sequenced 1,800 colonies off of a Petri dish to add really what was the first really strong data dump into strawberry biology. There were 53 sequences in, in GenBank when I started in strawberries, and most of them were misannotated little runs of sequence that didn't yeah, mean sure. anything. And we dumped in 1,800 sequences, which just blew the roof off of the amount of gene- genomics resources that were available for strawberry. And I did it the day I got it back. We didn't mine it and say, this is ours, don't upload this. You know, Dawn Bees and I said, we're uploading the whole thing and we're going to make a community resource. And I look back on that moment now, and that was the best move I could have made. Because all of a sudden, I went from, you know, uh, idiot guy, rabbitopsis, who doesn't know about strawberries, to be, here's a guy who, in our community, is looking to make a difference and change what was a strawberry and maybe a broader rosacea genomics community from being something where it was going to be competition for a limited resource to maybe starting out with a... Um, very collaborative environment. And the personalities were there. I mean, Tom Davis is a wonderful collaborator, and uh, all the folks across Rosacea, with some exceptions, are really good about sharing their techniques and tools. So that's how the strawberry thing started. Yeah, we look at where we are now. It's amazing, just recently, how little there was really known about strawberry. Yeah, six six years ago, we didn't have a sequenced genome. Yeah. You know, and, and and so this is what's so exciting is how fast these things change and how long it's been since then. Yeah, that's right. I, I, for my research, it's impl- completely dependent on things that we've only discovered in the last two years. You know, everything's just a small iteration on the next. So it's very amazing to me just how little really there really was. Yeah, and, and the tools that we have now with agroinfiltration and all the other things we can do, and your work, you know, we're now mining massive, you know, terabytes of information for uh, genetic information and able to do very sophisticated comparisons and these analyses. We've gone from, we haven't just gone from zero to 60, we've gone from zero to a thousand. And the exponential increase in information and the ability to solve questions in fruit using genomic strategies is just unbelievable. I work on gene discovery for flavor and disease resistance in strawberry. For flavor, uh, my work begins first in the field. So in a given season, I might collect almost a 1,000 fruit from a couple hundred different strawberry plants and detect the flavor compounds from each using GC mass spectrometry. The individuals in these populations are highly genetically related. They're full siblings. So when there is a difference in the flavor aroma compounds they produce, it's much easier to deduce the causal genetics underlying that difference. A lot of thought goes into making the right cross at the very beginning, so you actually end up with a puzzle that's solvable. Mm-hmm. Now, in an ideal world, we could would you know just sequence every strawberry genome all the way through with perfect accuracy, but that's just not possible, or at least it's not practical in the extreme. So we have to be like really clever about how we do it, right? The reason why we study traits using families is so we can track inheritance of the trait from the maternal or paternal plant in that family. Each sibling is going to have a different subset of their parents' genomes. That's right, yeah. So each sibling is a new clue. 
If a sibling does not make the flavor compound, then everything that individual inherited can be ruled out as causal for that trait. If a sibling does, does make that flavor, then that genomic subset is ruled in, obviously minus whatever it has in common with its non-producer siblings. Yeah. You keep going until you more and more narrowly deduce which small part of the genome is required for that trait. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's this whole thing called that we've really started with bulk segregant transcriptome analysis. Right. right? It, it's sort of a, a bread and butter approach in molecular biology, but what's special is uh, like the technical achievements that we've d- deployed to overcome the impossible octopoid strawberry genome. Yeah, so the, the, we should clear that up for folks who are listening, that strawberries have this octoploid genome. they got four complete genomes in every cell. Right, auto allo-octoploids, if you want to get fancy with science words. Yeah, it's, real, it's a mess. And so what we've been doing, and it's really clever, and I don't know how we stumbled into this, but it was just having folks like Alan Chambers and Jeremy Pillay around. We put our heads together all the time. And the idea was is that if you could take two, two parents that were very different for traits, cross them, look at the progeny, and see the different traits segregating. So you take all the fruit from each individual. Each individual's fruit, you have a DNA sequence or an RNA sequence. You sequence the genes that are expressed. You also know the compounds that are present from every single fruit. And then, like you were saying a minute, minute ago, you or group all of the data by which flavor compounds are present. So if, there's, if you're looking for something like gamma-decalactone, the peach flavor, you take all the producers and all the non-producers, all of the, all of the producers in one pile, all of the non-producers in the other. And then you look for which genes are turned on and off differently between those two piles. And what you find is one gene that sticks out. And it turns out to be the most important Regula- regulatory node in gamma decalactone synthesis. Right. So we look at uh, we have two, two complementary approaches, really. We look at differential gene activation between related plants, and we look at uh, differential inheritance of blocks of the genome between plants. Yeah. So those, those two things can go, go hand in hand in our analysis, and that's, that's really helping propel us forward. Yeah, because now you're actually, it's like, a, it's like a pinata. I mean, we've got how many leads on how many QTL now for this thing and how many different candidate genes. I mean, there basically are dozens of different flavor compounds. And the idea is to use this genetic information to identify ways to separate producers from non-producers. I should say discriminate producers and non-producers and be able to make better selections at the seedling level. So screen seedling for 30, 40, 50 different compounds and disease resistances and say, out of these 384,000 seedlings we've screened, these 1,000 have all of the likelihood of producing disease-resistant, good-flavored strawberries. And it, you can imagine how much land it would take to screen 384,000 strawberry plants. Yeah, that's right. And one way that we know this approach is working is because our analysis is incidentally rediscovering genes that are already known in the literature for flavor. That's right. So compounds and genetics that we didn't even intend to look at at all are being captured and successfully correlated by our analysis pretty much by accident. We have results like this for hundreds of strawberry flavor compounds. Obviously, most are negatives, which are still useful, but there are many, many positives as well, implicating 
small genomic regions or activated transcripts as important for controlling flavor traits. That's right. It's a really exciting time right now. I can't wait to get to the lab every morning. I'm serious. Yeah, well, you, you, you've rediscovered Little Lul. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> which, is, which is like my favorite, like Jerry Lewis, volatile Little Lul. <laughs> but, <laughs> Just rolls off the tongue. Well, it's, not, or it's like, well, there's a bunch of them that either sound like Jerry Lewis terms or uh, tools that the Three Stooges would leave in a patient if, when they were doctors. <laughs> right. <laughs> a Little Lul. Norlidol. <laughs> so, but that's the compound that tastes like or smells like Fruit Loops. Right. And that's another thing. It's another huge part of this story, right? Is that strawberry produces thousands, uh, if not hundreds of thousands of compounds, only a tiny fraction of which are detectable by the human nose and tongue. Those are the flavors and aromas. And a lot of the best ones share an interesting chemical property, which is, as, which is that they volatilize easily or turn into a gas, and they're actually experienced by humans through olfaction, even though you probably think that you're tasting them with your tongue. Uh, we've made advances uh, in accurately quantifying and comparing those compounds between samples, which is a really difficult thing to do. The Talking Biotech podcast has touched on this a bit in terms of single compounds like glyphosate and how difficult it is to uh, accurately discriminate zeros from non-zeros. We're not so much interested in any one compound. We're kind of interested in all of them. So it's been a big advance for us to get to a point where in just a couple of days, we can crunch an entire season's worth of GCMS data to a point where we can trust it enough to throw it into our automated analysis and actually get reliable output at the end. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that, you know, you can use these sensitive techniques to be able to basically dissect what a fruit smells like. How cool is that? You can see it on a printout. You know, and, and then use that data to identify the genes that underline those flavors. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Disease resistance in plants is often mediated by uh, so-called resistance genes or R genes. Basically, these guys do two things. They detect invading pathogens like viruses or bacteria. Uh, and the second is that when they do detect them, they cause the plant to commit suicide, taking the pathogen down with it. R genes are obviously really high-value targets for crop breeding and for Super genetic engineering. Yeah. So it'd be nice to like know what all of them are in strawberry, right? Uh, but as we mentioned, we can't feasibly sequence full strawberry genomes, not on that broad scale at least. Uh, so we've kind of uh, started with a, a clever approach. So our genes can have different specific functions, but and there can be hundreds of them in the genome, but their sequences are all pretty close nonetheless. What we're doing is we're, we're applying an approach called RENSEQ, which is to literally grab those R genes out of the genome while it's in a test tube prior to sequencing them. That way, the full power of a sequencing project is focused just on those super important R genes yeah. and not the other 99.99% of the genome that's not R genes. This improves our resolution so much that we can discriminate very small mutations which might be associated with emergent function. We're applying this method to a, a bunch of susceptible and resistant strawberry plants. This will give us, one, uh, a fairly comprehensive list of all the origins in our breeding program. Two, uh, it'll form the basis of a, a broader bulk segregate analysis where we can deduce specific origins as causal for resistance. Mm-hmm. And in three, in cases where we already have data implicating a genome region as causal for disease resistance, this RENSEQ data can give us the resolution to tell us exactly why and where that is. 
Yeah. So that, but you know, but you know more about this than I do. I mean, this is your project, and uh, you know, you're probably the world expert in strawberry R genes at this point. Um, so you know, you bring I think it it's up, a small world problem, <laughs> <laughs> but you bring it up, and I, you know, I'm a little bit at a loss for words. I should be interviewing you about this, but it's basically the idea that strawberry, um, like any plant, has these clusters of very conserved genes called R genes that work in defense, and they share some very common characteristics. So essentially, you're able to fish them out of the genome using those common baits and then be able to then discriminate the differences and then link them to function. And that's a, it's another really, um, it's, a, it's a massive project, but you know, you're doing a great job with it, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the results of that. I think that'll be a nice complement to the flavors. Yeah, definitely. That you know, you know the genes that can predict if a seedling will have good fruits uh, months before it makes one. You know, and then you also know it's resistant to disease months before it ever sees a pathogen. And that's the gl- the glory of this. It allows us to give breeders the information to hammer through selection, and that way we can lead to bigger fruit, better fruit, faster because the industry needs it. We can't go at the glacial pace of of traditional breeding. It requires this marker-assisted strategy. We have a pretty big lab at the moment. We have a lot of visiting professors, not postdocs, but actual visiting professors. I think as of two weeks ago, we had three in the lab. I think we had four. four. That's right, we had four. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. And most of us actually don't work on strawberry. I mean, projects change frequently, but we have a lot of people working on uh, light signaling in plants, uh, obviously, this big uh, random peptide project was just published in Plant Phase. Yeah. You want to talk a little bit about uh, your work in light signaling? Sure, yeah. Light signaling has always been my bread and butter. I was working in light signaling in 1987. That was my first project as a as a uh, undergraduate. And it was mapping genes associated with the way, pl- way plants could see their environment. And so my background is really in, in a pretty extensive in understanding light and how different parts of the spectrum contribute to the way plants grow and develop, but also the way they accumulate pigments, the way they accumulate nutraceuticals, the way uh, plants behave. All of this is based on light cues and different parts of the spectrum from way out beyond the UV to way out beyond the far red. So there's that part you can see. And now if you extend that a little bit more on the red and then way out on the blue side, that gives you a good sense of what the plant can actually sense. So they have this huge sensory spectrum that we can poke in different parts. The first part of my career was all about the nuts and bolts of the signaling system. What, what, is, a, what is a molecule that can be stimulated by a photon of red versus a photon of blue versus a photon of green? And how does that sensed photon translate into intracellular changes that lead to gene expression changes? And that's what I spent the first part of my career on. That field got real crazy because everybody's finding little esoteric tuners of light response, and it just was drying up for funding. So we started to look more into how can we poke plants and adjust their physiology by hitting them with different types of light and then seeing how we can shape the way a plant would respond. The beauty of this is that this hypothesis that we could make plants basically jump through a physiological hoop came hand in hand with the emergence of LED light technology. And I used to buy these bags of light on e- lights of LEDs on eBay 
and I'd buy them out of my own pocket money, and I'd assemble these LED arrays in uh, in pipette tip trays, and wire them all together, and develop some electronics. My dad is an electronics genius, and so I kind of inherited that, and would wire these very fundamental circuits together to make LED arrays for ten, twenty bucks, thirty bucks. That would cost us thousands if we bought them. And so we had some very good narrow bandwidth tools that we could begin to dissect questions about the way that plants interacted with the light spectrum. Before that, we were using like fluorescent bulbs wrapped in theater film, you know, and so uh, it gave us a nice tool set that nobody else had or few people had. And so we would then spend the next decade plant whispering. You know, this idea of talking to plants with a vocabulary <laughs> of light. Right. We, it's a great phrase. Yeah, we give them commands based upon... Uh, what we want them to do. And I'm a firm believer in this, and I I feel that uh, the greenhouse of tomorrow will have plants grown under specific light recipes, so combinations of light coming on at different times of the day, that are telling the plant to do things based upon what the grower wants as an outcome. So we can say, grow it under these two wavelengths for the first first 30 days, then hit it with extra far red and some UV on uh, on day 35 to cause an increase in the purple, the anthocyanins, say in lettuce, to create more variety, to create more healthful compounds. So that's that's the other thing our lab does. You know, we, we work in uh, how light interacts with the, the plant and that environment. Yeah, I'm sitting here looking at uh, a fixed red leaf lettuce that has uh, like a stencil on yeah. it, a little design based on just light signaling and protection of certain parts of that leaf from the light. <laughs> yeah, it's another one of these great ideas for outreach. So we, if you go to vegesketch.com, uh, I have an undergraduate in the lab, uh, Lauren, who is really great, and she's a ball of fire. And we learned how to identify plants where we could control pigmentation by alternating green and blue light treatments. And then doing this around a stencil. And so you can see on vegesketch.com, beautiful ways to do this. And then we're going to have kits available for science fair projects this fall, which come from outreach money that comes to the laboratory. And so, um, you know, we, we do a lot of outreach. We receive a lot of funding from individuals and, you know, other organizations or whatever to be able to supply things like um, science fair kits, uh, seeds or whatever. You know, shipping this stuff is the biggest cost. Right. It's ten bucks to ship a box to a kid in, in Boise, you know. So, but but it's an important part of what we do. So I remember before I joined the lab, we were talking. You're you're alluding to this huge project that you had. You had you'd started it, but you knew it was going to be big, and you couldn't tell me what it was yet because I wasn't officially in the lab, and I might go someplace else. And it was <laughs> it was a great idea. You didn't want me to steal it. You I might guess. go start your own company and <laughs> beat me with my own arm. <laughs> well, it turns out it's actually a pretty good idea. It just published recently in Plant Fizz, which is obviously one of the best plant journals around. Yeah. Uh, this is this is this was the random peptide project. Yeah. So tell us about that. So this was an idea that I always wanted to do. Could you take a random piece of genetic information and introduce it into a plant and have the plant produce a compound that never existed in the universe? So in other words, plants are using genetic information to produce proteins. And most of the time. So they use that, the genetic code to assemble amino acids into a very discrete sing- sequence. What if you gave it random sequence? You could presumably produce random peptides. And those peptides may have physiological relevance. 
I sat with this idea for years and we could never do it until we had recombination cloning. So for the listener, there's certain ways that you could um, get a fragment of DNA into a cell. And we needed to be able to do this in large numbers to be able to get good numbers of random sequences. So long story short, we put random stuff in and we get funny, funny effects. And it's really, really cool. I got a feeling that it could be an opportunity to create new types of herbicides or even uh, antibiotics. Right, and that's not even close to being the end of the list, right? No, we're talking about any any possible phenotype coming out the other end of this, as long as you screen enough for it. Yeah, we've got people in the lab studying for peptide sequences that protect against drought. We've got people looking at things that protect against heat. We've got things that make a plant flower early. So there's all these new chemistries that never existed until the plant told us, hey, here we are. So the plant is essentially telling us that it contains information that's allowing it to survive these conditions, or in some places, drop dead, which is a good thing to know. Because herbicides, there's no new ones, and can we make safer ones? Can we make better ones? By understanding the molecular vulnerabilities that are identified by random chemistry. Right. And I, I got a funny feeling that this is going to be a really cool project that's going to um, it's going to end up <laughs> winning some lucky guy a Nobel Prize somewhere, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> like someone will apply it to cancer or something, and you know I'll I'll be uh, you know I'll 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 be sitting here in <laughs> in Gainesville, Florida, right. thinking, wearing, wearing your clown makeup, where, yeah, looking for my clown shoes and. <laughs> you know, but it's it's one of those kind of things that you come up with an idea and then, uh, you know, I think that folks in China and all around the world are going to really run with this and make it uh, really go. There's been very little interest in this from anybody um, in federal funding. Uh, NSF says, well, that's nah, cute, but, you know, and NIH says, well, that's cute, but and USDA says we got no way to fund this kind of stuff. You know, luckily there's some companies that are interested, and so we may have some company support. But um, that's still, you know, it's it's great. You know, it's wonderful that they're interested in funding this kind of exploratory research because that really should be something that our federal agency should be more excited about. But funding rates are so low. You know, you how could you ever want them to take a gamble on something like this? Okay, with that, we'll take a short break. We are talking to Kevin Folta. I'm Chris Barbie, and when we come back, we're going to talk a bit more about SciComm and Outreach. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. One hundred episodes is quite a landmark. Surveys show that most podcasts take the electronic dirt nap somewhere around episode twelve. Our continued success depends on you, the listener, and your help in spreading the word, writing reviews, and sharing this podcast on social media. Science Podcast Space has become packed with highly produced, well-financed, and slick productions, yet this ragtag pirate ship of science continues to grow. We thank you for your support. And we especially thank our guests who made this show possible. And remotely interesting. So now off to episode 200. And again, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back with the Talking Biotech Podcast with Kevin Folta. Kevin, when did you and get... Chris Barbie. Oh yeah, I'm here too. Chris <laughs> Barbie. Fourth year PhD student. When... 
did you get involved in biotech activism, Connor? Well, biotech activism, well, that sounds horrible. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think of it that way at all. I think that back in, uh, when I was in uh, Wisconsin, um, back in 2000, I was working in, uh, as a postdoc there, and I used to go to a place called Willie Street Co-op, a little grocery store down on the end of the corner right where I lived. And this place, this place, uh, as I always say, makes Whole Foods look like a toxic waste dump. <laughs> it's, um, you know, there it's super green and super cool. And the people there are, are really nice. And it was a really, um, and, you know, employee owned, basically it's a co-op, right? You know, or, or a, a customer owned and just fantastic place for a lot of reasons. But they had some really, really screwed up ideas about biotechnology and really bad ideas about agriculture. And I thought, well, um, I can maybe give them a little talk. You know, maybe, you know, I'm a smart guy. I got a PhD. I can give these <laughs> um, uninformed masses a, a good dose of science, and then they'll be just fine. And so we uh, got together over at, uh, at actually a church, and I showed them pictures of binary vectors, and I showed them pictures of promoters and all these things. And Oh, problem solved, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I made the ultimate typical scientist mistake, is I tried to correct the deficit, right? I just give them more information. I'll edumacate these peoples. And it was totally horrible. I, I was really kind of a jerk. You know, I mean, I, here I was to save the day and teach you uh, idiots a whole bunch of science. It was only 12 more years of doing that in public audiences, um, being excited to talk to people, but not communicating anything. And it was a, that was a stark realization that didn't change until probably, I think, 2012, 2013. And when I was in Hawaii and realized that these were people who didn't want more information, you know, they had all the information. Um, they were ready to interpret, misinterpret information. They were confirming their biases with bad information. And the only way to turn this ship was to not get, beat these people to death with information, but to give them a hug and say, I totally understand where you're coming from. Because if I put myself in their shoes, out on an island in paradise that has had uh, significant pesticides applied at different times in history, you know, back in the days of pineapples and sugarcane, uh, DDT, you know, you can still detect it there. Why wouldn't people there be concerned? Right. And especially with the big companies that were pretty closed-lipped. And so to be able to talk to them about it and realize that I was making my progress when I took off my science hat and when I, took, when I put on a hat of decent human, and uh, I connected with lots of people there, even people who were the most vehemently anti-biotech folks. That's where I really found the basic idea of how did science communicate. When did you kind of realize that you'd sort of, over the years, developed into something of an icon? I don't think I feel that way now. So before I was your student, I, I followed you online. And like most of my science friends and colleagues knew who you were and had a lot of respect for what you were doing. And so when I decided I wanted to go for a PhD, the first thing I did was email you with my attached CV and mm. here we are, right? So yeah, that's cool. If that doesn't make it worth it to you, I don't know what other satisfaction no. I'm looking for. <laughs> I mean, I'm just a guy doing my job. I'm doing what all of us should be doing, right? We should be, and you do a great job at this too, at an early stage in your career. It's about sh doing the science and doing beautiful science, but sharing beautiful science and doing it the right way. 
And so um, I, I'm, I'm excited the idea that I have folks who follow me on Twitter or people who, when I go to another country, they come out to see me or whatever. That's really cool, and it's really super heartwarming, but it's nothing special. I mean, it's just making yourself available to talk about the things you do. Well, I do think that you're kind of unusual for an academic researcher, though, in that you actually do concern yourself with the problem of why sometimes solid discovery in academia is not translated into technology. I don't think really the average professor takes it on himself to try to understand the current status of genetic engineering as an industry or an idea or how strong the headwinds are against it. Things are not really so vibrant right now. GE companies are consolidating. Uh, the oppositional anti-GMO food niche is actually faring much better than GE companies by a lot of measures. Uh, and when you boil it all down, right, I think you recognize these problems come from really a consumer base that on the whole is extremely skeptical of GE. Mm-hmm. And I, I use the word skeptical measuredly here because I do want to imply some bit of virtue here. You know, Big companies do tell big lies all the time tobacco, numerous examples in pharma. I personally was in California during Enron's rolling blackouts. The list goes on. Sure. The only way uh, I see for the public to be able to know what's right and what isn't, other than out-propagandaing the propagandists who are capitalizing on exploiting those fears, uh, is for public scientists like you uh, to step outside of their boxes and start speaking. Yeah. No, that That's what's that, needed. It's totally what's needed because it's about trust. And we have the consumer's trust. Um, we are independent arbiters, no matter what people try to say. I mean, there's nobody who ever tells me what to say. Nobody ever, I mean, I'm a tenured professor at the number nine department in the world of what we do. Nobody tells me, here's how you're going to do it. I mean, I just don't roll that way. And that's true with our whole department. I mean, everybody here does beautiful science and they call it as they see it. The public needs to understand that. You know, they they see that some company donated such such and such to a university. And, you know, that's great. Our university somewhere, you know, added a lecture hall or whatever they did with it. I have no idea. Sure didn't come to me. And um, and so that erodes that trust. And that's where the folks who are against genetic engineering need to take out independent professors because they realize that we have the public's trust and confidence. But really, you know, back to your, your point is, um, is really about this idea of stepping out into these important discussions and being available for these important discussions. And we all can make a much bigger impact if we had more people in that space. Yeah, I think it'd be great if we had like some sort of like webcam or like listening bug like around the water cooler, or, like your average plant science, uh, you know, uh, academic building because the, the average conversation yeah. <laughs> between scientists is so ridiculously pro genetic engineering. There's there's really not any sort of like real logical debate about the safety of the genetically engineered varieties that are on the market today. Yeah, I think the public really just doesn't really get have a sense of where scientists really stand on this. Yeah, and that's and that's what's so surprising. If you look through all the abstracts of ASPB or ASHS or any of these plant conferences, you find people using genetic engineering to show beautiful proof of concept in the laboratory and in the field, yet none of that translates to commercial products because of the cost of deregulation. And that's what's the killer. Um, if anyone did find that something really bad happened to the environment or uh, it killed pollinators or it was bad for people, that would be front and center news. 
and and we and we would embrace that and be excited about it. I mean, it would open a whole new area of science. So there's no hidden agenda. There's no hidden anything. This is about a technology that can help people. It can help um, our farmers. It can help the needy. And we as scientists are excited to see that happen, yet we're up against this brick wall. And that's where this communication thing is more important than ever. So, Kevin, dearly beloved by your colleagues and students, obviously like promoted you to horticultural science department chairman, not universally loved online. How has the last two years been for you in terms of your outreach and your detractors? I know how it's affected me. How has it affected you? Yeah, no, it's been it's been weird because here I was as you know just a, and this goes back to your point in the beginning about what is it like to be a biotech activist or whatever you however you said it, and I don't think I ever was. I think my whole thing is I will tell you about the strengths and limitations of any technology. You know, here's a biotechnology. Here are the things you can do with it. Here's where it's not so good. Here's GCMS that you use to detect the volatile compounds. Here are the things that are good. Here are the things that doesn't do well. Everything is strengths and limitations, benefits and risks. And I've always been careful to frame every discussion of biotechnology strictly based upon the science that's there. So that's not advocacy and that's not being an activist. That's being a scientist. And that's describing what this stuff is in the clearest terms. And when people have said, well, he was a lobbyist for, you know, whatever... I've never been a lobbyist. I've been invited to go to Pennsylvania or to uh, House of Representatives in D.C. because they said, uh, we want to know more about this. Can you, as an expert, who, who by the way, is we're funding you, um, we need you to come here and do a little service. And you got to answer some questions for us because we need somebody to do that. And so those are, the, those are opportunities I'm glad to take. That's not lobbying. That's doing my job as a public servant. And being answering questions for our elected officials. I'm not asking for anything. I'm not saying I need you to vote this way on this bill. I'm saying here are the strengths and limitations of this technology as we understand it. Yeah, that's right. When we were there talking about the Pompeo bill, right, obviously we didn't take any questions, nor would we have, about policy. We did ask us if it was safe, and we told them what the data said. That's right. It wasn't a question of how do you feel I should vote on this, or it wasn't, yeah, it, of course which, which would have been appropriate. But um, if we would have went there and said, by the way, now that we have your ear, we need you to vote this way on this bill, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. It was it was us saying, thank you for your interest. What? How can we answer your questions so that you can make the best decision? And we gave them the strengths and limitations. You know, other things that have changed over that time is that, you know, ever since um, the FOIA stuff, so, you know, it's no surprise that people have uh, tens of thousands of my emails floating around um, between, you know, U.S. Right to Know, Vani Hari, other folks. Vani has been wonderful in that she's never cherry-picked them for making fake stories, which she could have done. And, you know, I, I give her credit for not going that route. At the same time, she never said, I went through FOLTAs, you know, 35,000 emails of FOLTAs, and there's nothing here, you know, Um, but, you know, whatever. But other folks have been happy to make those false narratives. And even this morning, uh, somebody online creating fake news, I hate to say that, but that's what he was doing, on Twitter, it gets no retweets or maybe one or two, (laughs) which means that, you know, it's pretty much blown out. You know, this thing's got no more wind 
those kinds of false stories are very damaging and they really do change things. You know, you know how much I do with grade schools and our local public school system used to have me come, I don't know, once a month at least. After the article in the paper and that kind of stuff hit, it went to zero. To think that a parent somewhere in this town was calling the school system and saying, we can't have this Monsanto shill in my classroom indoctrinating my children, that that is that took me out of the classroom. I mean, it's, it's heartbreaking. And even stuff locally, you know, like threats and, you know, BS like that, um, you know, office getting broken into here. Um, someone walked into my house on uh, Christmas last year. We have no idea what that was about. The alarm <laughs> went off and they, you know. Are you serious? Yeah. Someone uh, got into our house on Christmas Day and when the alarm went off, they left. Um, cops went there. Everything was fine. But I can't help but think that this is related to that, you know, and, and all of the other stuff. We The fact that Jack Payne, my boss, had to work with domestic terrorism because of the phone calls they were getting here in my office that they never let me hear. And the fact that psychos would uh, look up on my Facebook page or whatever before it was private and find out information about, about the wife and then look her up and then realize that she was on like these uh, exercise apps, you know, like Strava and stuff. Yeah, sure. And they would look up and they would they would post, send me a note with a picture of her last bicycle route, saying we know where she rides her bike. Oh my god! I mean, these people are bastards. And then even people locally, like in the local bicycle club, they took me off of the email list for the group group I rode with. <laughs> that's just that's just smart politics though. Can't blame them for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, but, but but it just shows you that that these things have you know, I mean I talk about the catastrophic effects on career. The fact that I have I'm at a career ceiling that I probably will never eclipse because someone in the room always says, you know, don't invite him or, you know, uh, he's damaged goods or he has too many legal things that'll come along with him or whatever. That I know has happened. And I've had people say, we kicked around your name for this endowed chair or kicked your name around for this position, and uh, we decided not they, you know, decided not to go with it, just wanted to let you know. And, and it's because of this thing. It's just because the view is being just too dangerous with because the, I'm, the I'm, controversy. I'm a liability, right? right. And, and that pisses me off in a lot of ways because in 10 years they're going to see that I was right. And it wasn't a liability, that I actually am doing the right thing that everybody should be doing, and that this isn't a liability, this is an asset. This is what every scientist should be getting out there and doing. And uh, (laughs) media stuff. They'll look me up and say, okay, this guy looks like an expert. Look at this scholarly uh, dossier. You know, he's got lots of papers. He's a good guy. Like one time it was uh, on point, the one mm-hmm. that's on NPR. Yeah. Producer sends me this frantic email back when Danny Hakim's first article came out about GM crops don't yield and, you know, and, and farmers must be nuts for using them, right? And uh, they said, we want to discuss this. Can you do it? And I said, I can't. I got in a meeting. It's at noon tomorrow. And they said, well, please, can you maybe move the meeting? Because we really need somebody for this. And I said, okay, fine. I moved the meeting. Very important meeting, too, and I moved it. And the next day, right before we go live... They send me, uh, or my phone rings, and he says, we can't do this. I said, why not? He said, well, because you work for Monsanto. I said, no, I don't work for Monsanto. I work for the state of Florida. He says, no, it says in this article here that you are paid to lie about science, basically, and that you're just a lobbyist. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, here I am two years out from, right. from 
this stuff, and I'm still losing opportunities to do important things that are related to my job. And that kind of stuff, whether it's the the local hostility, whether it's the you know missed opportunities in schools, which is you know my passion and what I want to do, blown opportunities in media, which can be good for your career as well as you know important for experts to be answering questions, and then kind of having a career capped, you know the the residues of the fallout for stepping into this conversation are really intense, but. That's not a cue for people to run from this. This is a call for more of us to get into it. And kind of my new role in this has really been, but that's what I like about my new roles in science communication, is that it's not just me out speaking to people about how to do it and not just doing it myself. Um, I've, I've had a lot of good vibes out of being you know, kind of being the defender of the others who are going under the bus. Because now that they've, you know, they've, they've beaten me to death, I mean, there's nothing else they can get out of me. You know, they've, they've done as much damage as they can do. Um, the main thing I can do is help other people who are going through the same thing. And when, uh, right now, Christine Latin, the, the uh, postdoctoral animal behavior researcher who's being uh, harassed by PETA, you know, being able to advise her and share her story has been like the best thing for me. That's been therapeutic because seeing somebody else who is not going through absolute hell, well, she's going through hell, but um, it's not as bad as it would be because she sees people on her side and she gets tremendous support online. Um, that was the stuff that got me through. You know, it was the Allison Van Enenims, the Maria Trainers, the Stephen Novellas, David Gorskys, the, the lots of people who stepped up. Right. And you've always had the support of the professors here. Oh, yeah. I mean, faculty here in our administration have been fantastic. So that's what I want to be for other people. So you got her. You've got Britt Hermes, who's getting harassed by Bastyr University right now because she was a naturopath who came out and said, this is crap. Right. You know, and now they're after her with cease and desist letters. I'm going to back her up big time. You've got um, uh, many other examples like Ray Hilborn and Trevor Branch and these other people who have been foia to death. And uh, they were trying to get foiaing documents from Trevor Branch from when he was 12 years old. <laughs> they said, we want everything back to 1980. He's like, I... <laughs> you find a lot of dirt back then, I bet. Yeah, well, um, you know, yeah, so very intimate relationship with Matchbox cars. You know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> shill for big Matchbox. But long story short is that I totally love this idea of being the one who creates the pushback. And that when people cross the line going after researchers, I want to be the fist that hits back real hard. And I think that's a great role for me. Um, most of, well, in many ways, because I'm not afraid of people. I'm not afraid to stick my head into it at this point. And I was grateful when people did it for me. And I also see the effect of not doing it. And this is where every single scientist needs to, to get on track. If you can't stand up for the truth... When things are easy and when, you know, and times are good, how are you going to do it when it's hitting the fan? And right now we have an opportunity to create the change we want to we see. The folks all over the world need technology. We've got it. It works. Tell the truth about it. 
go talk to people about it. Get out there and, and, and share this stuff. You know, the, it, we're going to look back on this time, and people are going to be in one of two places. They're going to be the ones who stepped up and created change, or they're going to be the people who watched it not happen. And, uh, and, and some of them will take credit for it. Um, but other people will feel that I could have done more. And I've seen that happen in my situation. Um, I go to national conferences or anywhere. I go to Columbia. I go to Belgium. I go anywhere. And people come up to me and they bring me gifts. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> they give me hugs. They cry on my shoulder. And they say, God, I wish I would have done something when I could have. And that's been, it's been sweet. But it's also reminded me that I don't want to be that person in that situation. I don't want to have that remorse for not acting when I could have acted. And so that's why um, when I see somebody being harassed for their science or for being uh, intimidated in social media or intimidated anywhere, I'm going to be first into that burning building and I'm going to take care of business. Yeah, and you're setting an important example too. So I've had other students in my grad program come up to me and they say, hey, I saw something that, that you wrote online good job, you kind of make me feel like I should be doing more. And that, that's hilarious to me because I don't feel like I'm doing much of anything when I look at what you're doing. You know, I think you're pulling people, people with you. Well, That's it, great. I, I, I think some of the trends we're setting are good. I think that we've demonstrated that anybody with a microphone and a, can do a, a good podcast, which right now we're up to 20,000 downloads a month. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they told me if I monetized this thing, I could make $600 a month. And I think, oh, gosh, that would be great. But, you know, now we're going to get into that mess. It would be a lot of Eppendorf tubes. It would be a lot of Eppendorf tubes, but it also would be a lot of allegations that now he's a paid mouthpiece for big corporations. To, you know, I, I ain't going there, you know. Yeah. That, you know the, the idea of the podcast, the idea of writing a lot of lay articles about science, um, I think that's a good trend, too. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. And I'm trying to get faculty more excited about doing it. But, man, is it? That's a hard thing to turn. Right. And we're such a self-selected group. I mean, very few people get into science because they just, you know, they love or excel talking to big groups of people. It's kind of the opposite, you know. Yeah. I, I, I'm personally, I'm terrified every time that I, you know, try to do something that's, you know, sci-com related. It's just really not in my blood to do that, but I do that out of a sense of obligation, and I feel like that that is that is what the example is important for to other scientists. That even though you might not like to do this, it's the right thing to do, so you should do it. Um, Mary Haney from uh, Florida Fertilizer and Agrochemical. She that's an organization here in the state that provides. Uh, is a trade organization for the many different compounds that are used to ensure crop protection here in the state, which is diverse. Um, you know, she caught that when I said it once. That she said, you know, why do you do this? Why do you subject yourself to this? Why do you go through it? And I guess I told her because it's the right thing to do. I don't remember saying that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she always reminds me of that. And I think that's the important point. Uh, for all of us is that, you know, that if we're going to see the um, funding rates change, if we're going to see respect for scientists as experts, if we're going to see better jobs for scientists coming out of PhDs and postdocs, we better 
start creating that change as scientists. Right. If we want to see our discoveries add up to anything, sure, we've got we've got to win win the battle for hearts and minds now. Yeah, seeing your innovation end up as an application. You know, that's what we want to do, and it requires communication. And so all this stuff about you know test tubes and and pipetters and and molecules and DNA and proteins, gosh. Love that stuff, but at the end of the day, it matters more how we share that and what those conduits are. And if we're going to be able to, because basically it's it's social license, right? If we're going to get the play in the lab, we got to first have people on our side. And we have to have the public in a situation where they're excited about funding science. We have to have the public screaming to us for more, more, more. Give us more technology, more good stuff. You know, if we have that, that's great. You know, companies are willing to fund it, but that leads to all kinds of weird issues with what, you know, IP and what the companies are going to use and all that stuff. How do we get the public more excited and the public making those demands? It's only when they know we're here and that we're working for them. And that's when we create that change. That's right. Well put. So what's next? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's that's the fun of this. Is that five years ago I could never tell you I was going to be a department chair. In fact, I'd tell you no way. I got a funny feeling that um, five years from now I might be doing something completely different. I think in the long term, I think as I skate towards retirement, I imagine I just want to do work in places where people need more assistance. And I, I can imagine spending all my time in the developing world and helping people farm and set up labs. I can imagine spending a lot more time in those capacities, you know, bringing technology to people as really more of an extension role than working in, in the lab or working as an administrator. I think that's the long, long term. Um, I think that, uh, you know, once I quit working at a university, uh, you'll find me in, uh, you know, in Uganda or something. You know, I, I don't imagine that. You, On the beach, right? Or, yeah. <laughs> no, I hate the beach. Uh, you know, you know how bored I would be if I ever retired, retired? I just, I want to retire someday, um, not so I can quit, but so I could do something different. I was telling somebody the other day, if I email you at midnight, I will get an email back by 2.30 a.m. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... um. It's one of the fun parts about, uh, you know, I check the mail constantly, and uh, when I teach class, I say, you guys, you know, if you want to you wanna get a hold of me, try me at uh, like 3 a.m., because that's the best time. And they would all say, you know, yeah, right. And then, you know, 3 a.m., my phone rings. <laughs> what can I do for you, you know? I'd rather get it done than have to do another thing between 9 and 9. And 9. Yeah, sure. So 9 a.m., 9 p.m. That's what's next. I have no clue. And a lot of it depends upon um, the uh, political climate, the funding climate. I, right now, I'm like you said, I'm wearing three hats full-time, department chair, uh, researcher, and SCICOM guy. And I really need one leg to fall off the stool. And if I can get enough people, enough students or others getting fired up about science communication, I would miss that, but it would be okay to not do it, at least... 50 talks a year or 100 talks a year, whatever it is. I'd love to not be a department chair, but, you know, like we said before, you know, really for me it's about research and the passions are in the lab and working with students and guiding postdocs. Getting postdocs to land the job, I mean, that's the best thing you can imagine. Um, When the people who've worked with you closely go on to do things better than you, uh, that that gets me charged up. So who knows about the future? We'll have to see. Check with me in five years for (laughs) episode 300. 
700, right? No, I think well, it's 52 <laughs> weeks a year and maybe once a week with maybe a few little stutters. So 100 weeks is basically, what, two more years. So 2020 will be up to... Uh, man, my I can't do math on the fly anymore. Well, I hope you keep it up. Yeah, I hope so too. Who knows what the end point will be? Right. I'm gonna quit at ten thousand episodes. <laughs> quit, quit. How about you quit when the when the work is done? That that seems like what we need. For That's a pretty good way to put it. You know, like I like I don't know what was the you know the the TV show where they walked out the door and shut it behind them and said I don't know was that Seinfeld or something. But whatever it was, that's 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 how it's going to look. It's going to be like, you know, I'm going to throw the keys in the door and say, forget it, I'm done. Right. And when the work is done. And I think it, I think that it's only a matter of a couple of years before people are going to get fired up about technology. We've seen so many good changes in agriculture and embracing technology, but also embracing more traditional methods and kind of starting to gravitate towards what's the best of all worlds to ensure the best for everybody. And I think that's where we want to go. Right, great place to end it. Uh, 100th episode of Talking About Tech Podcast coming full 100th episode. That's crazy. All right, thanks, Chris. Yeah. And one more time, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And thank you very much to Dr. Paul Vincelli, who's been an outstanding host of many excellent episodes here on the podcast. And thank you to Chris Barbie, who's done a great job stepping in as a student to share his science and talk about the issues in science communication. Thank you to you, the listener. I'm really excited about getting going up to number 200, and I think we really just have scratched the surface. In fact, I think a lot of the original visitors or original guests from the first 100 episodes will show up again between 100 and 200. Uh, Lots of great stories to share and many great stories to update. Most of all, thank you for listening and we'll hear you again next week on the Talking Biotech Podcast. The Farns always knew exactly who he he was. Uh, He could take apart a motorcycle and put it back together could take apart the hearts of America and put them back together. (laughs) You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.